Last week we talked about the fact that life is hard. It's hard because there are complex situations we find ourselves in when it comes to suffering. And we ask, Lord, why? Why am I going through this? Why is this person I love going through this? And it's hard, there aren't real answers sometimes. Life is hard as well because of complex intellectual questions as we try to wrestle with what's going on? How do we make sense of this? How do we make decisions in life? How do we understand where life comes from? How do we even understand what God might be saying in the Bible? Life is full of complex intellectual decisions. Life is full of complex situations where we suffer and we wonder, why, Lord? And last week we saw that God's response to the complex questions we have in life is not complex answers. It's a person, Jesus that God gives us to walk with us through those things. Sometimes Jesus gives us answers. Sometimes Jesus heals. Sometimes Jesus takes away the suffering. And sometimes he doesn't. But all the time, he's present. All the time, he's with us. This morning, we wanted to think about the fact that life is not only hard because of suffering and because of questions we have about intellectual sorts of things, Life is also difficult because all of us find ourselves from time to time in confusing ethical and moral situations where we're not sure what to do. What's the right course of action? Should I do this? Should I do that? Perhaps, for example, you have somebody in your life who would like you to refer to them with different pronouns or a different name than you're used to calling them. And you're not sure, how do I respond to this? What would be the right thing to do? How can I please the Lord and be kind in this? Maybe there's a situation where someone at work, your workplace is cheating the company that you work for and you wonder, am I supposed to turn them in? Should I say something to them? Should I leave it alone? Maybe in your class there's someone who's cheating off of you or cheating in class and you're like, do I do something about this? Do I say something? Do I leave it alone? Complex ethical and moral situations where you're like, I'm not sure what I'm supposed to do. Maybe you got a situation where someone's been through a messy divorce and you're like, well, should we use them right now in ministry? Is there something they need to go through? How do I come alongside? Whose side do I take in this? What do I do in the midst of this? Maybe you have a situation where somebody in your life is a loved one, a parent or something like that, and there seems to be some boundaries they're crossing, and you're like, do I say something? How do I do this? Life's full of complex ethical and moral situations where we got to figure out what to do, but we're not sure. What is the right thing? What is the thing God wants us to do? It's confusing. It's not black and white. And the gift of God to us in the midst of these complex ethical and moral situations is not a list of ethical guidelines where we try to figure out, okay, well, in my situation, numbers one, four, and eight, they apply, I should do this. But God's gift to us is a person, Jesus, who walks with us in the midst of these tricky situations, guiding us and directing us. We want to think about that this morning from our story in Matthew chapter 12. So if you have a Bible, let me invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 12. If you don't have one with you, a Bible that is, there's one in the rack in front of you. And we would be delighted if you would take one of those Bibles and turn to page 792. 
792, that's Matthew chapter 12. And this morning we're going to see a couple of complex ethical and moral situations. Now both of these have to do with rules for keeping the Sabbath. That may be the thing you're struggling with in your life, trying to figure out well, what is the appropriate amount of rest to have in my life and when do I break those rules, when do I keep those rules, how to do those kinds of things. It might not be the thing that you're struggling with. But this morning we're not going to be talking about any particular ethical or moral situation, but instead taking a look at this one, wanting to see how Jesus is present with us in whatever situation we go through. So I won't be discussing in detail some of the example scenarios that I brought up at the beginning of the sermon here, but simply we'll be taking a bigger picture view of this person, Jesus, who comes to walk with us and be with us in the midst of the tricky decisions we gotta make when it comes to ethical and moral things in life. So Matthew chapter 12, there are two stories in verses one to 14, and we're gonna look at both of them together to see what they reveal to us about Jesus. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry and began to pick some heads of grain and eat them. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath. He answered, Haven't you read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He entered the house of God and he and his companions ate the consecrated bread, which was not lawful for them to do, but only for the priests. Or haven't you read in the law that the priests on Sabbath duty in the temple desecrate the Sabbath and yet are innocent? I tell you that something greater than the temple is here. If you had known what these words mean, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath." Going on from that place, he went into their synagogue, and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Looking for a reason to bring charges against Jesus, they asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? He said to them, if any of you has a sheep and it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will you not take hold of it and lift it out? How much more valuable is a person than a sheep? Therefore, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. So he stretched it out and it was completely restored, just as sound as the other. But the Pharisees went out and plotted how they might kill Jesus. As we look at these two stories, there's five questions we want to ask to try to get at and understand who Jesus is and what he's doing in the midst of this story. Question number one, why is Jesus not eating? Our story begins with Jesus and the disciples going through the grain fields on the Sabbath and we're told that the disciples are hungry. And so they pick uh, the grain on the Sabbath which the Pharisees find that to be a violation of work on the Sabbath and they're eating the food but the question is, why isn't Jesus eating? After all, we don't think that sort of Jesus got up that morning when the disciples weren't around and had this really huge breakfast and then met up with the disciples and they were like, 
what, you ate already? Like, we're hungry. And Jesus is like, oh, we'll go through some grain fields, pick some food, you'll be fine. We don't think that's what happened. We don't think Jesus has eaten anything either. So he's hungry too. Yet when they go through the grain fields, it's just the disciples who are eating and not Jesus. And the question is, well, why isn't Jesus eating? He's hungry. And I think the answer is, is because Jesus is there to serve them. And what he's doing is he's showing us and the Pharisees that eating on the Sabbath in this situation was not a matter of life and death. No one is in danger of starving to death. Jesus is hungry and the disciples are hungry. Jesus is going to make it through the day without eating. They would have made it through the day without eating. And this is the point. Jesus is not just simply feeding his disciples because he thinks they're going to die. In his mercy and grace, he's providing them with food because they're hungry. And he loves to feed people. This is a little bit like when Jesus washes his disciples' feet. Nobody turns around and washes Jesus' feet. He washes their feet. Here in this situation, he knows they're hungry and he's led them into a situation where they're going to eat because he's serving them. And when the Pharisees argue with him, we find that Jesus is not fighting for his right to eat. He's fighting for our rights to eat. And here is the encouragement, regardless of whatever confusing ethical situation you might find yourself in, Jesus never asks us to do more than he is willing to do for us. Jesus chooses the harder road here. Somebody's got to not eat to show future readers that this is not a matter of life and death. Somebody's got to not eat to be able to serve others, and Jesus signs himself up for that role. The Pharisees are not like that. We'll find out in Matthew 23. Jesus says to the Pharisees, look, you guys say one thing and then do something else. And you put a bigger burden on your disciples than you yourselves are willing to bear. But that's not true with Jesus. Whatever confusing ethical or moral situation you or I might find ourselves in, Jesus has gone through more difficult things than we have. And he's here to walk with us in those, in mercy and in grace. Helping us figure out what's the right and kind and merciful thing for us to do. Second question, what are the Pharisees doing in a grain field? <laughs> like you read the story, you're like they're going through the grain field and the Pharisees are like, what are you doing? And you're like, wait a minute, what? Pharisees in a grain field? This is not where Pharisees hang out. They're supposed to hang out in synagogues and in cities. They don't go wandering around in grain fields. So the question is, what are they doing here? And the answer is they're trying to trap Jesus. We find that out for sure in verse 10, because in the second story when they go into the synagogue, it says they're looking for a reason to bring charges against Jesus. And you get the sense that Jesus and his disciples are walking around and there's always Pharisees sort of with them waiting to see when he's going to mess up. And so Jesus is like, okay, fine, well, we're going in the grain field. And they're hungry. He knows full well how the Pharisees are going to respond to this. And it's interesting in both stories, the Pharisees are trying to trap Jesus. 
And in both stories, he springs the trap. He walks right into it. He knows exactly how they're going to respond to the disciples picking grain. And he knows exactly how they're going to respond when he heals a man on the Sabbath. So why does Jesus spring these traps? Because he wants to bless his disciples with food. And he wants to heal the man's hand. And the point is, is that in the confusing moral and ethical situations we find ourselves in, we might think Satan has led us into those situations to trap us. And that's probably true. But Jesus leads us into those situations to bless us and to bless others. We think we're there because we might get in trouble, but that's not why God has led us into those situations. God has led us into those situations because he wants to bless us and he wants to bless others. And the confusing ethical and moral situations that we find ourselves in when you're like, I'm not sure what to do. Satan means those for evil, but God means them for good. He wants to use them to bless us. That's how merciful he is. Third question. Why does Jesus use this story from David's life? So when the Pharisees get upset about eating grain, picking grain and eating it, Jesus refers to a particular story from his ancestor David's life. And the question is, why do this? In verse 5, he makes the point, haven't you read in the law that the priests on the Sabbath duty in the temple desecrate the Sabbath and yet are innocent? He's already made his point. He doesn't need this story from David to do it. The question is, why pick this story? Because in fact, this story that he's referring to is itself a messy ethical situation. Let's go back in just a minute. I'm going to show you the verses up here. I want to show you the story, but let me set it up for you. The story comes from 1 Samuel 21. And in 1 Samuel 21, David, who will be the future king of Israel, is at this moment sort of a younger person. He's not yet king. The person who is currently king is Saul. David is at this moment in 1 Samuel 21, Saul's son-in-law. He's married Saul's daughter. He is the best friend of Saul's son, Jonathan. And he is captain of Saul's bodyguard. He has a very prestigious position in sort of Saul's cabinet. He has everything going for him. And that's the problem. God has filled David with his spirit. Saul sees this and gets jealous and decides by the deception of Satan that he wants to murder David, his son-in-law, his son's best friend, and one of his most trusted members of his cabinet. Well, God reveals this news to David, and David is shocked, as you could imagine. And so he flees the situation. And the very first place that David goes is he goes to the priest's house. And we pick up the story in 1 Samuel 21. David went to Nob to Ahimelech the priest. Ahimelech trembled when he met him and asked, why are you alone? Why is no one with you? That's because David is the captain of the king's bodyguard. He doesn't travel by himself. He's always got people with him. When he shows up, Ahimelech already senses something's off. And so he asks him, what's the situation? David answered Ahimelech the priest, the king, that's Saul, 
sent me on a mission and said to me, no one is to know anything about the mission I am sending you on. That's a lie. That is not true. Saul did not send him on a mission. Saul wants to kill him. David could have told Ahimelech, hey, look, things are going badly. I'm on the run from Saul. I need some food. Instead, he outright lies to him and says, oh, yeah, I'm on a mission for the king, and nobody can know anything about it. As for my men, I have told them to meet me at a certain place. Now then, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever you can find. But the priest answered David, I don't have any ordinary bread on hand. However, there is some consecrated bread here, provided the men have kept themselves from women. David replied, indeed, women have been kept from us as usual whenever I set out. The men's bodies are holy, even on missions that are not holy. How much more so today? So the priest gave him the consecrated bread, since there was no bread there except the bread of the presence that had been removed from before the Lord and replaced by hot bread on the day it was taken away. Now what we didn't read is the story goes on and Saul finds out that Ahimelech has done this. And he has Ahimelech killed. And all the other priests killed as well. And what we realize is is that David's lies contributed to the death of this priest and his family. David himself realizes this when he hears what happens. He is overcome with guilt and says to the one descendant who lives, it's my fault. I am the reason why your family is dead. It was his lies that contributed to this. That's not the cleanest story. That's not the nicest thing. That's not the best memory. You're like, Jesus, why in the world are you referencing this story? It's got a bit of an icky feel to it. Why is Jesus doing this? Because he's merciful. What what about David's sin? It's been forgiven. It's remembered no more. This is part of the covenant God makes with us that he takes our sins and remembers them no more. All that Jesus is highlighting is what David did right, which is he valued the lives of his men over the consecrated bread. And Jesus said, David didn't bother with the rules, he valued life more than the rules and did the right thing. But even his choice of this story is an act of mercy on the part of Jesus that he's taken the situation in which David did good, but also messed up badly, and he has forgiven his mess up and just remembered his good. And this is the encouragement, whatever ethical or moral situation you and I might find ourselves in. God is always merciful. And even the times in which we mess up, in which we make the wrong decision, we do the harsh thing or the angry thing or the selfish thing or we try out of fear to protect ourselves, even in those situations, God is merciful and kind. And for future generations, he only tells the part of the story where we did well and forgives the parts that we mess up. Fourth question. Why is the man with the shriveled hand healed this way? So in the second story, after the grain fields, they go into the synagogue, and the Pharisees want to trap Jesus, and so they say to him, hey, look, here's a guy with a deformed hand. Maybe you should heal him. Now, the reason why this is such a tricky situation is 
He doesn't have a life-threatening illness. His shriveled hand is not threatening his life, meaning Jesus could come back the next day and heal him and there would be no problem. The Pharisees have set it up to be like, hey, look, why don't you heal him on the Sabbath? Jesus recognizes their trap and springs it because he says, well, what better place is there for someone to be healed than God's house? And what better day is there for someone to be healed than on the Sabbath? And so he chooses to heal the man. But watch how he does it because it's very, very interesting. And you have to look closely. Verse 13. He said to the man, stretch out your hand. So he stretched it out and it was completely restored. Now I've often read this story in the past and kind of in my own mind I envisioned it this way. You know, the guy has a hand that something's wrong with it physically. And Jesus says, stretch out your hand. And in my mind's eye, I kind of pictured him like slowly stretching it out. And I picture the whole process taking, you know, like five or 10 seconds. And as he's stretching it out, I see kind of the movie version of it. His hand is starting to get healed. And by the time it's fully stretched out, it's like, well, it's healed. And you kind of watch the healing process happen along the way. That would make for good Hollywood, but that's not actually what this says. In studying it, sort of looking at the verbs that are used here, the tenses of the verbs and the fact that the second is passive, what actually seems to have happened is, is the man's hand is healed before he stretches it out. Meaning it got healed and then he stretched it out to show everybody that it was healed. Now you're like, why are we making a big deal out of this? Well, normally when, or often when Jesus heals people, he does something. He spits on the ground and makes mud or he lays hands on somebody or he prays or he looks to heaven or he says something. When Jesus does a miraculous sort of thing, he often does something that gives us an indication that he's doing something at this moment. But in this case, there is absolutely nothing that Jesus does that could in even the remotest sense be considered work. He's not working at all. Stretching out your hand is not a violation of the Sabbath. People stretch out their hands on the Sabbath all the time. Picking up your mat and carrying it, that's a previous story in Matthew. That by the Pharisees was considered work, but stretching out your hand most definitely is not work. Nor is Jesus doing anything that you might consider to be work either. And in fact, if you look really, really carefully at the story, so he stretched it out and it was completely restored. Not it became completely restored, it was completely restored. <clears throat> Which means there's nothing in this passage that says that Jesus actually healed this man's hand. <clears throat> Which raises the question, who actually healed his hand? To which the answer is, God the Father. Do you see what Jesus is doing? He's very subtly, gently, and mercifully telling the Pharisees, God's at work on the Sabbath. You think you're on God's side, but God is the one who did this healing. It's a very gentle way. Jesus could have stuck it to him. He could have basically said, you want to trap me? Watch this. But he doesn't. 
because even for his enemies, in his mercy and grace, he gently is trying to prompt them, you are not with God on this. God is working on the Sabbath, doing good. You should be doing good as well. It's the mercy and kindness of Jesus, even to his enemies. He is gentle and merciful. Fifth question. Why does Jesus say in verse 6, I tell you that something greater than the temple is here? Why doesn't he say, I tell you something greater than the law is here? The most common word in this, these two stories is the word lawful. It shows up over and over again. We think we're talking about the law. Sabbath is a law requirement. And so in this moral and ethical situation, what we think we're talking about is what does the law have to say about these things? But Jesus says, I tell you something greater than the temple is here. Not something greater than the law. Why? Because what God is giving us in our complex moral and ethical situations is not a better law, but a person. The temple represents the presence of God. And Jesus is saying something better than the temple is here, meaning that Jesus is God himself present in the midst of this situation. And instead of handing out better laws for people to figure out what they're supposed to do, Jesus is saying, I have come to be, live among you to help you in these situations. That's why this morning's sermon is not about situational ethics. It's not about taking whatever situation you're in and trying to figure out, okay, well, if this happens, then do this, and if that happens, do that. It's a reminder that in the midst of very difficult, confusing, not sure what to do kinds of situations, God's mercy and grace is that he gives to us himself. Something better than the temple. Because in Jesus, we see the fullness of who God is revealed to us. And what is it that we learn about God? That he's incredibly merciful. That he comes into our situations to serve us, not asking us to do anything more than what he has done for us. That where when Satan wants to trap us with these ethical questions, God wants to use them to bless us and others. That even when we make mistakes and sin, God chooses to forgive our sins and remember them no more and only remember the stuff we do right. That even when we're wrong, God mercifully and gently prompts us that we might not be on the same side as God in this situation. So my friends, here is the encouragement from God to you. Whatever you're going through, if you're trying to figure out what pronouns to use with somebody that you know, if you're trying to figure out what to do with someone who may be cheating at work or cheating at school, if you're trying to figure out how to handle someone going through a messy divorce that you care about, if there's somebody in your life for which you're like, we gotta figure out better boundaries and these kinds of things, how do we do this? How do we honor father and mother while we're trying to do this? Here is the encouragement to you. Take heart. God is with you. He is a merciful God. And all he asks from you 
is that you let him be merciful to you in the midst of these situations so that you can be merciful to others. He's not giving you a set of rules. There's not complex ethical formulas to try to figure out. There's just the presence of a merciful, gracious, gentle, kind God who says, don't be afraid. I'll walk with you through this. I know you don't know what to do, but I'll take care of it. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you never leave us or forsake us. What the religious people around, around us want is religious rules. What you've given us is your merciful presence. Help us to be merciful to others as you have been merciful to us. Lord, you delight to be merciful. And what is it that you require of us? That we act justly, that we love mercy, and that we walk humbly with you. Help us to do this in your strength and power. Amen.